Krishna, uh, we are doing a darshan here in Chawton, in the uh, county of Hampshire in England. And so I'm going to introduce the devotees who are here. So you can say your name and... Uh... <laughs> All right, Krishna, and then we'll come back and then we'll have them ask questions. Also, if anyone on uh, Facebook wants to ask questions, uh, you can also ask questions. There's no one there yet, but oh well. This is Sankarshan Das here from Krishna West London. Hare Krishna from London Das. Hare Krishna Jagapana Das from London. Sarvejara from Brazil. I will Pravibna from Chile. And now in London, right? And now in London, yeah. And I am H.V. Uh, Goswami, as far as I can remember at my age. Okay, so uh, we're going to invite the devotees to ask questions, Q&A. And so um, if you have any questions, you can ask questions on Facebook, uh, simple questions. Or if any of you have questions, do I have a follow Yeah, I have a question. So, so come here and then you can ask so that I don't have to repeat it. <laughs> yeah, my question is... Um, I was looking at a uh, YouTube lecture from a, from a philosopher who's, who, who was saying that um, those, who, th those religion who accept uh, the existence of an omnipotent God, they are, they, they, in, their, in their theology that there is an omnipotent God, um, and they devote themselves to omnipotent, to an omnipotent God. Uh, they, they, if there is an omnipotent God, that the soul cannot have free will. <laughs> That's a bad argument. Okay, okay, is that it? Yeah. Okay, that is the question. If there is an omnipotent God or omnipotent then the soul cannot have free will. Uh, bad argument. I mean, nothing personal. He's just presenting the atheistic argument. I'll tell you why it's a bad argument. To have power does not mean that one must exercise that power to the detriment, in other words, against the interest of another person. For example, uh, let's say a mother and father have a little child. So practically the parents are omnipotent in relation to the child. And if the parents are evil, they may actually exercise that power. But if the parents are good, then they protect the child in every way and love the child, but they also are careful to give the child enough freedom and independence so that the child can grow up in a healthy way. So the problem with the argument, as you stated it, is that it's insufficient grounds to conclude the soul has no free will. If we say, see, there's a missing premise there. Often in bad arguments, there is a, a, uh, an implicit, implied premise, which is unstated, but it's necessary for the argument to work. And so if you bring that implicit premise uh, into view, then you see that it's actually a bad argument. In this case, the implicit but unspoken premise is, 
that if there is an omnipotent God who actually exercises his or her omnipotence in absolutely controlling the soul. Because not to have, not, so that's the first, so that unstated but implicit premise uh, turns out to be not the case. Because in fact, uh, there is no omnipotent God who chooses to exercise that omnipotence in controlling the soul. Therefore, the argument fails. Of course, even if there was a God so inclined, it would have to be the case that this omnipotent God also uh, absolutely controlled the mental activities of the soul. Because even if someone has physical control of you, you may still retain your mental freedom. And that's often the case. People that have been in prison, but they still retain their mental freedom. And uh, so the argument fails because of the implicit premise not being the case. Yes, you can come and ask your question here. If I thought I, I, I would try to make an effort at improving the argument. So the bad, the bad one, the bad one. Um, perhaps the worry here, the worry here isn't so much about an omnipotent God, but an omniperfect God, which includes omniscience. And I think the argument could could be more like this. If God does know everything and he knows what you will be doing in the future, if you were to do something different to that, you would, you would make it the case that God made a mistake in the past because he is meant to have known what you were going to do. So if he does know what you're going to do, you cannot do anything but that. And therefore you don't actually have freedom to do anything but that. That's probably the worry in relation to the omniperfect God or the omniscient God. And how would we deal with that kind of problem? Um, okay, that is another uh, argument that doesn't work and I'll explain why. There, there are several things we can say. First of all, to know everything uh, means to know everything that actually exists what you will choose in the future does not exist and therefore there's nothing to know because it isn't anything it's one can say that omniscience simply refers to real things that actually exist not to things that do not exist and may never exist uh another problem with this argument is again a hidden premise an un unstated implicit premise you've just given another argument with a, an unstated implicit premise. And that is that knowledge uh, of an act means that one controls the act. For example, let's say I know you well enough to know that you're going to come here on Wednesday and you come here on Wednesday. According to your argument, my knowledge that you would come on Wednesday um, forced you to come. But what if I just know? Or for example, let's say, because then of course one could say, well, it's technically possible that you not come on Wednesday. So in that sense, uh, I didn't really know it. That would be the argument against that. But let's take a case where, uh, for example, let's say you have a factory, any kind of factory or a distribution center. Let's say you work for Amazon 
explorer and you work for, uh, I don't know, Apple computers or anything, it's impossible to manufacture anything, either industrially or even just to make one of them. Let's say, for example, you make canoes one at a time. And uh, based on your experience, uh, you know that there's a certain way to make a canoe. So your knowledge of it, of course, th that example is a little different because let's say a piece of wood from which you make a canoe is not a living thing. It doesn't have free will. So, so we can't really, but even in, um, let's say you run a factory and you're producing Apple computers. And so you have to meet a deadline and you know that you have to have so many workers and so many, uh, you know, alternative workers in case, because inevitably somebody gets sick or someone doesn't show up and you actually produce the computers on time and the computers actually function properly because in the assembly line, everyone did their job properly. Now, according to your argument, none of the people in that factory working under you have free will. None of them chose to be in the factory. None of them voluntarily did anything. In fact, they are helpless slaves without free will because your knowledge of what would happen uh, forced them to act in a certain way. So it's not clear to me that, that knowledge itself uh, is controlling, although the counter argument to what I said, somebody could say, well, uh, in the case of the Apple factory, this is not an endorsement, by the way, for Apple computers, because they're not giving me a penny for saying this. <laughs> They, someone might say, well, actually, you, you don't know the computers will be built on time. You only know that it's extremely likely. And there's a difference between knowing something is extremely likely. Let's say like it's, you know, 1,000 to 1 or 10,000 to 1 based on your previous experience. It's extremely probable as opposed to actually knowing it. That actually knowing something is different. So... Um, Again, we have a case where ultimately you would have to show. I think the problem with your argument is this. You claim to have proved something that you haven't actually proved. So here's how your argument goes, because the unstated premise, so I hope this is not getting too technical for the people out there in Facebook land. But here, here's really what you're saying. You're saying that uh, if somebody knows, doesn't just, uh, let's say, believe with a, high, with a very high probability, but actually knows that someone else will do something. Or no, actually, here's how the argument should go. Let's say I know that you will do something in the future, whatever it may be. I know that you will do it. I don't simply think it's very, it's extremely likely you will do it, but I actually know that you'll do it. And uh, in order to, here, here are the unstated premises. Uh, in order for you to act freely, it must be the case that no one knows what you will do. In fact, one could say it must be the case that you don't know what you'll do. 
because if you today know what you will do tomorrow, one could argue that tomorrow you have no free will. And the reason this is true is because knowledge of an act, knowledge of a future act, uh, forces the act to take place, that somehow the knowledge itself, and after all, what is knowledge but a state of consciousness? The consciousness of a future act forces the future act to take place. And I don't think you've demonstrated that. So what we have here is a case of begging the question in the sense that what you're trying to prove, what you need to prove, is that knowledge of a future act forces the act to take place, but you haven't explained why that's the case. And therefore your argument, basically, here's the circularity of your argument. You're saying that knowledge, uh, knowledge of a future event or act forces the event or act to take place. God knows what we will do in the future and what will happen. Therefore, God's knowledge of our future choices forces us to make those choices which really aren't choices at all. So what you said is because knowledge of the, of the future event forces it to happen, therefore God's knowledge of the future event forces us to do that. Or for, you know, so you just said the same thing twice. In the first case, as a premise, you stated it as a general principle. In your conclusion, you stated it as a specific case of the general principle, but in fact, you haven't argued for the general principle. So if there's no argument for the general principle, a specific instance of the general principle is not valid. So rather than argue for the principle, you just stated it twice, in a general sense, in a specific sense. So I don't see what your argument is. I don't, I don't think you actually made an argument. Yeah, only if you come forward. Yes. Are you gonna say it in English or more? Both. <laughs> Hare Krishna. So we're, we're speaking about knowledge and uh, often, you know, when we, we go to school and we hear that knowledge is just acquiring information. It's a, it's a information processing. So my, my question is, according to Shastra, what actually is knowledge and how are we to express it? Are there different ways of expressing it? Or is it just a matter of knowing something that can be transmitted to other people who can know the same thing and transmit it in the same way? Are there different ways in which we can know and relate knowledge? Okay, I'm going to try to understand what that question is. Um, so, uh, You're asking what is knowing? Yeah. Well, let's start with the dictionary. Because there are actually competent people that already thought about this. So let's see what the dictionary says about what it means to know. The dictionary usually takes you through circles of synonyms. To be aware of through observation, inquiry, or information. It can mean uh, to be absolutely certain or sure, 
to know means to have developed. One of these other definitions is kind of not really. To be familiar or acquainted with something. We're, we're just getting synonyms, really. But um, for example, do you know that you just asked a question? Yes. Well, then we, yes, you said yes. So then what does that mean that you know you just asked a question? It means you have an awareness of it through memory. So I don't think, I mean, knowing, I think, is a very simple, basic idea that everyone, I think, understands. So I'm not sure exactly. So if we take that simple process of knowing, then exactly what further are you asking about the simple process of knowing? I, I think I'm asking, it seems that different people It's, it seems to me that um, different people, um, uh, how do you say it? We, we understand better from some people um, and some people understand better from other people. Some people understand much better on a kind of rational level. Some people understand much better through art and uh, literature and maybe less expressive, more intuitive ways of knowing. Um, and when there's, when two people of different, under, you know, different ways of getting knowledge try and interact, sometimes they don't understand each other. So I'm trying to understand, is knowledge an internal thing or something objective? Well, there are people have different ways of knowing. Yeah. As you said, some people know through art, some people know through philosophy, some people know through um, life experience. So it doesn't really matter, you know, somehow or other, if you understand people come to knowledge in different ways and uh sometimes people that know the same thing can communicate and sometimes whatever but i, I think it doesn't really matter how you come to know it if you do come to know just like krishna says people come to krishna people come to him for different reasons so and uh, Prabhupada said often said they're in the nine processes of devotional service, shavanam, kirtanam, vishnu, and so on, hearing, chanting, remembering, that people come to know Krishna through any one of these nine or several of them or two of them. So it's, it doesn't really matter as long as you get there. So any other question? Yes. Uh, you have to hear in English, please. Like your, uh... The devotees are fixing the service in devotional service in Shanti Hare Krishna, follow the principles, everything. And, but sometimes the the mind, you no, know, many times the mind just uh, doesn't go like uh, um, when you are connected to Krishna, and sometimes it's just lose the connection. And how you do for like one thing well because because as we know we're trying to be krishna conscious and krishna is testing us krishna is forcing us to not forcing us but if you want krishna i mean after all if you want a relationship with someone they may say well i will accept a relationship with you or friendship with you under certain conditions for example that you not cheat me or that you not lie to me or that you not financially exploit me and so on so people you know it's perfectly normal in fact i think it's it's healthy and necessary that before entering into any kind of serious relationship or friendship that people verify that it's a healthy relationship and krishna does the same thing 
So Maya is there to test us and to exercise us, to exercise us so that we become strong. So um, yes, if you want something valuable, you have to be prepared to pay for it. Krishna is not whimsically testing you. He's not <clears throat> asking you to undergo suffering for no good reason. Every trouble we have, every suffering we have has a very specific reason. Krishna in the heart knows exactly where we need to improve. He knows exactly what our impurities are and he is rectifying us. I think every devotee at some time in his or her life has said to Krishna, please save me or please guide me or please help me to understand. So after all, how can you claim to be a devotee of Krishna if you never in your life said anything like that to Krishna? And so if you did say it to Krishna and then he actually does it, then what's the problem? He's doing what you asked him to do. He's training you. He's exercising you. Let's see if there's any questions here. Um, I don't think I'm seeing if we have any questions. Um, so there are no questions on Facebook either. We have a slow day here at the Vedic Ranch. Yes, it's Pradyumna. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, I was wondering, since we were talking about knowledge. Yeah. Since we were talking about knowledge and what means knowledge. Uh, I don't know if I'm, I'm wrong, but uh, the notion of knowledge is also related to this idea of uh, uh, Paramatma realization. How is link the idea that knowledge involves some sort of relationship between the being and some external source. It's, it's actually some external what? It's source of knowledge, Service. source of information. I don't know how can... <clears throat> well, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that he's in our heart and knowledge comes from him. So Paramatma, which just means the Supreme Soul, uh, Krishna is in the heart. It's the same person. We are actually monotheists. There's one God. So Krishna is in the heart. And um, and he reciprocates with us. He gives us knowledge or he makes us forget, depending on what our desire is and what we deserve. So it's very simple. It's just like now they have all these almost miraculous medical treatments where I, I often say that nowadays... Uh, Bionic science, combination of biology and electronics, digital. It, it's like the new Jesus because the blind can see and the lame can walk and so on. So now they have for people, some people who are blind or, or if the cause of their blindness is actually some kind of damage or imperfection in the eye itself, they actually go behind the eye to the optic nerve and they connect directly to the optic nerve and then they're able to place relevant mechanisms which actually allow the person to see. So the, the example there is that um, whatever we see, 
whatever we know. In one sense, you know, there's the eye itself, all its different parts, and there's the optic nerve and the brain. But behind all that, there's Krishna. And so the real source of seeing is Krishna through intelligence. One example, famous example of sort of going beyond the senses is Beethoven. Everyone knows that Beethoven uh, gradually became deaf, uh, you know, and not just at the end of his life. And yet he composed some of his greatest works such as the Ninth Symphony uh, when he was completely deaf. And so this is just an, an analogy because he had understood music, harmony, melody, rhythm. He understood these things beyond the senses. Of course, someone could say that he, he did have senses before and, and, he, and he just remembered it. But and for anyone that really knows music, uh, it goes beyond the senses. For example, there was a, um, there is a, a great Baroque keyboardist who played uh, one of the most famous Baroque keyboard pieces, the, uh, the well-tempered clavier of Bach. It's a long and very sophisticated work. And he was saying about it that when he's playing and just, and really gets into the music, he's not really hearing it. It's almost like the platonic form of the music. He's just, and that's something I've experienced myself, that you get to a point where you are seeing the ratios, the harmonies and the, the harmonic progressions and the melody. And, and it, it is like Plato said there, it exists or you understand it at a level which goes beyond just your physical ear of hearing it you really see the texture, the relationships, the, you really experience it at a much more complete level beyond just hearing. And so those are just a few examples, but ultimately, ultimately uh, behind everything and above everything is Krishna. And so in Krishna consciousness, we have a type of knowledge that, um, that transcends all uh, aspects of the material world. It's just, it is an eternal spiritual knowledge, which includes the material world, but also transcends it. And so Krishna says, Matak, Krishna says, Sarvasya Chahan Hari I am directly situated in the heart of everyone. Matak Smritir Gyanam Apohanam Cha. This is Gita 1515. For me, God, oh my God. Oh, sorry, Let me just tell that person so they don't call again. Sorry about that. I uh, actually two people just called me again sorry for this brief interruption
So, uh, back to the program. So knowledge comes from Krishna. And ultimately, the real point of Krishna consciousness is, as Krishna says, Vasudeva Sarvamiti, that Krishna is everything. So to understand that Krishna is the source of all knowledge, and we know everything through Krishna, and then we know that everything is Krishna in a special sense, Veda, Veda, Tattva. And to know that the perfection of our life, either emotional, artistic, philosophical, uh, sensorial, at every level, the perfection of our life is Krishna, is to have a direct and favorable, loving relationship with Krishna, is everything. That is what a great soul finally understands after we struggle in so many ways to be happy and to understand life and all that we go through. Krishna says after many lives of this, someone who actually understands knows that Vasudev Krishna is everything. So that's the conclusion. Krishna is everything. Therefore, Krishna says, Tameva Sharanangacha, Sarva Bhavina Bharata. Go to him alone for shelter with all your existence. Go to him alone for shelter. So this is the great truth of Krishna consciousness, that Krishna is everything. That we have to go to Krishna uh, for everything. As Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, Vyavasayatmika Vudhir Ekeha Kurunandana, that if someone is really determined to be happy, to be Krishna conscious, then they only have one problem in life. And that is how to remember Krishna. And Bhushaka, many branches, Kinantascha, in, in, indeed endless branches. Krishna says, Buddha, yo, the, uh, the intelligence of those who are Abhyavasayinam, those who are not determined, those who have not really decided, not really fully decided that I'm going to be Krishna conscious. They have many problems. They have financial problems, emotional problems, physical problems, mental problems, you know, everything. Relationship problems because they haven't really made up their mind. They're not really determined. If you're really determined to be Krishna conscious, then it, all the other problems just become opportunities to surrender to Krishna. So they're not problems at all. They're simply situations created by Krishna so that we can practice surrendering. So if someone thinks they have two or three or more problems in their life, they haven't really made up their mind to be Krishna conscious. That's what Krishna says. And sounds right to me. So, um, here's a question from Valjilea Cardozo Pereira. How can we be more pure with this spiritual knowledge nowadays? Uh, you have to practice it. 
we have to practice it. For example, let's say someone is taking tennis lessons. I won't comment on whether that or not that's a Vaishnava sport. But let's say someone is taking tennis lessons. Uh, you can't learn to play tennis just by sitting in your room and watching a video on tennis. You actually have to go to a tennis court. You have to take a tennis racket in your hand and you have to hit the ball or try to hit the ball. And so how can we be more pure with this knowledge? We have to try our best to practice it. Try our best to practice it. And just like if you're learning a musical instrument, it may not sound great in, at first or at second or third or fifth, but if you keep practicing, someday it'll sound like music. And if someone keeps practicing tennis, someday they'll be able to hit the ball fairly well. So if we want this knowledge to come alive and not just be theoretical or doctrinal, if we want the knowledge to really come alive, we have to get out there on the bhakti yoga tennis court and hit the ball. That's the famous and ancient tennis analogy. So, uh, here's something. In the first canto of the Bhagavatam, this is from Ratna Bhushana. In the first canto of the Bhagavatam, it is stated that Sri Vyasdeva divided the one Veda into several branches and sub-branches, seeing that the people in general were less intelligent. What does dividing the Vedas have to do with facilitating the understanding of the less intelligent? It's a very good question. I've never heard that question, but it's, it's very interesting. Um, well, think of it this way. For example, in ISKCON, we have a Grihasta ministry. And so uh, if, let's say, someone who's interested in Krishna conscious householder life may look at all of Prabhupada's books and think, well, what do I, it's, you know, how do I figure this out? And so, but if someone writes a manual, here's everything Prabhupada said on Grihasta life, then it becomes much easier. If someone, let's say, I think some devotees have done that. We have a Grihastha ministry. If someone takes, here's what Prabhupada said, here's what the Bhagavatam said about householder life, and even taking that knowledge and categorizing it. You know, here's what Prabhupada said about the relationship between husband and wife. Here's what Prabhupada said about um, raising children. And so on and so forth. And so when you categorize things, when you, when you uh, take all the information on one subject and put it in one place in an organized way, it makes it much easier to learn it. And that's true for everything. And so there are many books nowadays, like what Prabhupada said on this subject or what the Bhagavatam says on that subject. So the process of categorizing is still going on today. Uh, let's see, are there any other questions?
Uh, you have a question. Well, let me just read this one first. Or was it on the last question? Okay, come forward. You might injure me for saying this on a runaway country. This is a bold question. What, what you just described in terms of categorization, it could be construed as um, what materialists are doing in terms of taking specific pieces of knowledge, becoming specialized, and then the issue is then how do you unify everything? Um, okay. Is that, did you miss something by taking the whole apart and trying to look at independence? What uh, Ramnand is referring to, I suppose, is what I just posted on our academic conference, BAS, namely that the original idea of a university was that it be universal in the sense that um, you have people in all different fields, whether it's biology or philosophy, theology, art, history, and they all live together in, uh, you know, in, in proximity. There's a campus in which people can talk to each other and try to come to a big picture of reality. Because as we know, there's only one reality. And in that one reality, there is art, there is history, there is philosophy, there is theology and so on. And so the idea is to find the, uh, a deep understanding that explains everything. What happened as we know is with the, um, with the academic rejection of God, there was no longer a unifying principle. And so you have, let's say, people in biology, and of course that's much too general, people in some sub-sub-sub-specialization of biology doing their thing, and you get this phenomenon in universities where people in the same department can't talk to each other. I mean, never mind between departments, people in the same department can't talk to each other because they're all burrowed in, they're all so specialized. And so, um, which defeats the purpose of the university and makes it impossible to ultimately see the big picture. It makes it impossible to ultimately have a large understanding of what reality is. And so many educators have, have noticed this. Many presidents of leading universities and, and many professors so people have noticed this. I know I, I get newsletters all the time from Harvard. They are the most tireless fundraisers probably in the academic community. But anyway, they also really keep in touch. They, there's always, they're always handing out articles and newsletters. And um, they talk about this. They, they, I mean, Harvard and, and, and many other good universities are making a conscious effort to reintegrate knowledge. So in, in answer to your question, um, yes, we need things to be categorical, but for example, someone who reads, let's say a Grihasta manual where we have everything Prabhupada said on the different aspects of family life, I mean, hopefully someone's going to take that knowledge and not retire from the world, but use that knowledge to become a strong, Krishna conscious householder, and then do many other things in the world. People, you know, it's not that someone's a Grihasta for, to make a living. You don't get paid just for marrying someone unless you marry the parent of a, a very desperate parent that can't marry their child. But anyway, under normal circumstances, you know, that's your ashram, the Yudhavarna, where you actually make money. So 
um, by being a good householder or a good brahmacharya, sannyasi, or vanaprastha, it simply means that you can do all your other duties nicely. Doesn't mean that there's nothing else in the world that you want to know or do know. So uh, let's see, this is from Jamuna. Hey, Jamuna. I told the story of the Kalia serpent to a group of middle school kids the other day in relation to my name, Jamuna. And one kid asked me if I really believed the story. I'm always on the fence about this. And I have felt that if I don't believe these fantastic stories, that I must not have faith in Krishna. How would you have explained this? It's an interesting question. I think I would have told the middle school kids that if God could not do things like that, he would be very boring. <laughs> and, you know, that's how can the world be religious if God is boring? Maybe that's the reason why more people aren't religious because they think that God is boring or what what is taught to them seems like, oh, that's nice. God is all powerful. Uh, what are we going to do Saturday night? So the fact that God is beautiful, playful, that Krishna has a beautiful, that actually God includes Krishna and a the most beautiful goddess, Radharani, that there are love of affairs, there are sports, uh, and just incredible pastimes. Once you understand that God is not boring, once you understand that God is infinitely beautiful, infinitely interesting and friendly, why would you want to give that up? And if God means a creator, why would God create a world in which we can do all these things if they have nothing to do with God? I mean, why would God create a world where we can have more fun than he does. So, yeah, so the fact that Krishna is playful, youthful, he can do quote unquote far out things, uh, thank God. <laughs> thank God we have someone interesting in the position. <laughs> So let's see if there are any more questions coming in over. Oh, what is the, this is from Miriam. I don't, I don't know, they may have spiritual names, these devotees. What is the best way to show gratitude to Lord Krishna? Uh, by reciprocating. For example, if someone's nice to you and you're grateful, you're nice to them. If someone gives you a gift and you're very grateful, you want to give them a gift. So I would say the most important sign of real gratitude is reciprocation. If I realize that Krishna has done so much for me, then naturally I think I want to do something for Krishna. And if I don't want to do something for Krishna, I must not be grateful. So yes, it's... Um, I still remember, I'll never forget, I, I had very good parents. I remember, oh, I, I don't know if I was five or six years old, but young enough, so uh, anyway, it was my birthday. 
when I was growing up, probably for many of you, birthdays were a really big thing when you were a kid. And so I was all excited. It was my birthday party. And there was a knock on the door, and I ran to the door. And it was my aunt, my mother's older sister. And I, you know, I opened the, I, I opened the door, and the first thing I said to her was, what did you bring me? Like, what present? So we were taught not to do things. My mother immediately pulled me aside a nice way, but a very unforgettable way, told me that you don't do things like that. You don't say that to people. And it's related to gratitude because I never, I never forgot it. Actually, I never forgot it. You know, all the studies show that what children need is love and boundaries. They need both. So because assuming my aunt brought me a gift, which was highly likely under the circumstances that she was going to my birthday party, um, what I should have expressed to her is gratitude, not greed. I should have expressed, if I really appreciated that she came to my party, that she you know, brought, she must have, I probably saw a gift in her hand. Then I should have expressed gratitude by thanking her and thanking her for coming and so on. And so, um, yeah, so I think the most important sign of gratitude is that we reciprocate with that person in whatever way we can. Uh, let's see. Is Chris in the front? Um, let's see. Any other questions here? And so I'm just scrolling through the Facebook here. So I guess that's all. If there are no other questions. Um, this class won't be so long, but then again, if I keep them short, you will all be able to hopefully fit them into your schedules and, and I can give more classes. So I've been chatting here still still speak English. And uh, it is today, um, April 27th. And in six days, Krishna willing, I'll be flying back to California. So thank you all very much for watching and uh, hope to see you all again very soon. All right, Krishna.